0: How many of you have had your heart broken at some point in your life? Yeah, raise your hand. It's all right. Had your heart broken. I am one of those people. In eighth grade, I, uh, I was asked by a girl on the cheerleading squad if I could, if we could be boyfriend and girlfriend. Now, the fact that she had to come to me to ask that question just goes to show how miraculous it was that I dated anybody at this time. So it just so happened that the school homecoming was that coming weekend. So we, uh, and, and in Texas, if you don't know, homecomings are a big deal. Uh, the guys would gift their girls with this elaborate corsage that has flowers and ribbons on it. Guys would gift their girls with a little pin-up flower. You got dressed to the nines. You went to the Friday night football game where it's hot and muggy and you flaunt your floral. And I don't know why it's a tradition, but we do it and it's a big deal. So we did it. We had a great weekend that Monday morning. I went to my locker and there's a note slipped inside of it. Oh, it's from my girlfriend. My now (laughs) ex-girlfriend. Middle school, heart broken. (laughs) And you want to know what, that's what happened, but you want to know what didn't happen when my little budding heart was broken. Nobody called the ambulance. Nobody checked my my blood pressure. Nobody attempted CPR on me, right? Now, if you've had your heart broken, like, my eighth grade self then you know that a true heartbreak can feel a lot like cardiac arrest sometimes but let's just flip the script imagine i was having heart complications that day my mom calls 911 and the operator says something like oh i'm so sorry to hear about your son's heart listen don't try to change anything just listen hold him let him know he's loved let him cry it out some Right? Our life depends on distinguishing literal truth from metaphor. If a friend told you that she's going to kill her husband if he leaves a toilet seat up again, I hope you're not calling the dom- domestic abuse hotline, at least not yet. Right? If, uh, if your wife comes home one day and says that she, uh, had, she died of embarrassment at something she said at the board meeting, I hope you're not marveling at her resurrection. However... If your teenage daughter comes home one day and says she's contemplating suicide because of something embarrassing that happened in front of her peers, well, you would do good to take her literally. Both literal and figurative language can describe reality. We can tell lies with literal words, and we can reveal truths with metaphor. And indeed, when it comes to this book, that is absolutely true. Welcome to the Vero Beach Church of Christ, where we are continuing our sermon series, I Want to Believe, But, where we are looking at the nine questions that are keeping your friends and your co-workers from giving their life to Jesus. You see, what we want to determine in this series is that faith is not determined by logic, but it's not afraid of it either. Right? We are reminding you that your faith in some ways may be blind, but it's not oblivious. That every day you will take a leap of faith, but that you can have confidence that your feet will hit ground on the other side. Today, if you are visiting, it's going to be a little bit different sermon than we normally do. Normally, we like to speak in the Bible and through the Bible Today, we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about the Bible. A little bit different approach, but absolutely important. As we address this question, is the Bible, this book that we read, that we have given our life to, that reveals to us the truth about what we claim to be our Savior, is it reliable? Is it trustworthy? And how can I have confidence of that? Do we take the Bible literally? What about the contradictions that exist in the Bible? And is the New Testament a trustworthy source to go all in? Now, questioning the legitimacy of the Bible is not an unnatural thing. It's certainly not a new thing. Even the Bible itself claims to uh, doubt the Bible. Jesus himself, as he Approaches his cluster of disciples who are absolutely flabbergasted that Jesus is standing and breathing in front of them. They watched him die and now he is here and here's what he says, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. That shorthand for you're not believing your Bible. Now, we're going to review many modern questions that attack the legitimacy of the Bible here in a moment, but I want to assure you, again, it's not unnatural for you to have doubts. In fact, I want all of us to be in the place of a skeptic this morning, because if we're going to believe, believe in this word, to stake our life on it, then we need to make sure we're coming from a place of reason and a rational perspective. Because if we don't, we are at risk of what popular atheist, Sam Harris, he says this. He says, tell a devout Christian that his wife is cheating on him or that a frozen yogurt can make a man invisible. Well, he's likely to require as much evidence as anybody else. But if you tell him that the book that he keeps by his bed was written by an invisible deity, who will punish him with fire for eternity if he fails to accept its every incredible claim about the universe, and, well, he seems to require no evidence at all. The question I want to answer today, is that true? Is that true for you? Do you just believe because it's what you've always known, or is there reasoning behind it? I think the most appropriate place for us to begin, that's not supposed to be up there yet, hold on, we'll get to that in a second. I think the most appropriate place to begin is the inconsistency of reading the Bible either literally or figuratively. You know, I've been accused, Peyton, you either have to read it word for word, literal, or you have to count it all as metaphor. You don't get to just pick and choose to what's convenient to you. I'm not alone. In 2014, U.S. pastors were asked, describe your understanding of the Bible. Here were the three options that they were given. Number one, that the Bible is the actual word of God and is to be taken literally, word for word, 28%. Option number two, the Bible is the inspired word of God, but not everything in it should be taken literally, 47%. Or option number three, the Bible is an ancient book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts that are recorded by man. Now, instinctively, can't even help it, we expect that these statements categorize pastors in a descending order of how seriously they take the Bible. Number one being most serious, number three being they can just discard it. The problem is reading the Bible literally, word for word, is not how humans Operate. It's not how Jesus operated either. Our lives are littered with metaphor. We bust a gut. We love with our whole heart. And even Jesus uses metaphor to describe himself. He calls himself the Good Shepherd, but he's not a farmer. He calls himself the true vine, but he's not claiming his planthood. Rather, he's tying into Old Testament themes. David, the shepherd, to become king. Israel, God's true vine. In fact, it was people who took Jesus literal word for word that often missed his point entirely. Let me give you three examples. One time Jesus is in the temple. He's talking to religious folk, and he says, Look at this temple. One day I'm going to tear it down and rebuild it in three days. Now, this angered a lot of people, confused many. They thought, how could this marvelous building be destroyed and then built again, not knowing he's talking about his body? On another occasion, Jesus is talking to a man named Nicodemus, and he tells him that, Nicodemus, you're going to have to be born again, and this causes Nicodemus to scratch his head. How can a grown man crawl back into his mother's womb and then be born a second time? not knowing that Jesus is talking about a spiritual birth. Or when Jesus breaks all social barriers with a Samaritan woman, offers her living water that she will never thirst again, and again, she misses the point entirely. Here is my point. If the message of the Bible is true, then the literal realities of our own lives— are embodied metaphors that point us to the transcendent God. Let me say that a different way. We use metaphor to connect our human realities to a very inhuman God. Let me give you two examples. God didn't notice fatherly love and then decide to call himself father. No, instead, God created fatherhood so that the best human fathers would give us a glimpse of his paternal care for us. God didn't notice the intimacy of sex and marriage and then decide to call Jesus the bridegroom and the church's bride. God created sex and marriage so that marriage at its best would give us a taste of God's passionate, sacrificial, and unconditional love for us. So wait a second, Peyton. Are you saying that I don't have to take the Bible literally then? That all of the radical claims of the Bible, I can just kind of sidestep right next to them, and I don't have to deal with what they are actually telling me and the world? Not at all. As with every conversation you hold, some parts are intended literally, other parts are intended figuratively, and it's often pretty easy to tell which are which. The prime example in which the authors are speaking literally, is the crucifixion and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Bones, wounds, and all. They witness Jesus. They spoke to him. They touched his wounds. They share a meal with him, and he shows himself to hundreds of people. This is a very real moment, right? Recognizing the power of metaphor doesn't discourage us From God's radical claims about miracles and everlasting life, and the hard decisions we have to make in our own journey with Jesus. Jesus often spoke figuratively about historical realities the Bible claimed happened. Literal and figurative readings of the Bible both have a place, and it is the responsibility of the church as a collective leaning on the wisdom of past church leaders and scholars to know which is being used and what purpose as we read the Bible together. Okay, maybe you can get behind that, but, but what about the contradictions that exist in the Bible? What do I do with those? It's funny, I had a conversation with somebody who addressed this very thing to me, and, and, st- and my, my response to him was, I think, pretty disarming, Because he came to me asking about the contradictions, and I invited him into a conversation. Okay, let's talk about those contradictions. I didn't deny that they were there. I wanted to talk about them. And I asked him, okay, well, won't you give me an example, and we can talk about them. The funny thing is, he couldn't think of an example, and so I gave him one. (laughs) Imagine that, right? Someone comes to disprove the Bible, and I'm the one giving the contradiction as an example. Let's just start at the very beginning of the book. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Two creation stories that don't exactly line up in sync with each other. I thought, well, what do we do about this? And he's thinking, okay, yeah, that's good. What do we do about that? I think I'm right here. I think I'm winning. I said, well, instead of us looking at this chronologically, what if we actually looked at it theologically? What if the whole purpose of this is to juxtapose these two passages— so that we see a bifocal version of them, as if these two passages were put next to each other on purpose for that very reason. Giving us insight to a truth and a reality that no human was there to witness. I bring this up, and what I'm inviting you into is that contradiction shouldn't scare us. They shouldn't make us doubt the Bible's credibility. Jesus himself spoke in contradictions. He said, I am the Lamb of God, and I am the Good Shepherd. Well, which one is he? How can he be both the Lamb and the Shepherd? The Alpha and the Omega, the Priest and the Sacrifice. Now, you can dismiss all of this as contradiction, or you can experience them as paradoxes. Describing a reality and a man who transcends all understanding. New Testament author Peter Williams points out that Jesus frequently taught through paradoxes. Here's what he says. The presence of such deliberate formal contradictions, he argues, does not mean that the contradictory statements are not both true in some deeper level. Paradoxical statements in the Bible, they force us to look at God and creation differently. You know, we're inclined to assume that our 2,000-year displaced minds are far more intelligent than the Bible and the people of that time. But I guarantee the more you read, the more that fallacy will become a myth to you. You can ask MIT professor Rosalind Pickard, who we learned about in our testimony series. She was an atheist, a proud atheist, and a teenager who, whenever she first thought about the Bible, thought of it was a fantastical story of crazy myths. But then as she explored it deeper, she said, I started reading the Bible, and the Bible started changing me. That type of transformation only happens whenever we wade into the deep waters of God's word instead of splashing in the shallow end of moving closer to contradictions or paradoxes or debate. All right, let's land this plane. And I want to land it on a discussion about trust. If I want to answer any question for you this morning, whether you're a skeptic or a faithful believer, is how can you come to trust this book? How can you come to trust its historical accuracy? So we're going to put it side-by-side to other ancient writings of antiquity? How can you trust this book culturally that this wasn't a book written at a time 2,000 years ago and it has no relevance for my life today? And then finally, how can you trust this book on a far more personal level? Let's start off with looking at historical trust, talking about manuscripts and content. We're going to do a little history lesson here. If you're not a history buff, I'm going to keep you along with me. We're going to have a good time. If you are a history buff, you can nerd out with me. Trying to deduce whether an ancient document can be trusted, scholars have to consider many factors. Let me give you two big ones that they have to consider. First, they have to consider the... uh, I don't know why I'm having a brain fart right now. There it is. The number of manuscripts that are available of that document. Manuscript is the original document or one of the originals. How many do we have? Because the more we have, the more we can compare those documents with each other and the more valid that document becomes. So how many manuscripts do we have? And the second thing they have to answer is how long were the manuscripts written from the actual events they're writing about? The further the distance, the far more untrustworthy. The closer the distance, the more we can trust what those writings are. So let's compare the Bible to a couple of documents. Thucydides lived from 460 to 365 BC. He wrote about the Greco-Roman world. We have about eight copies, eight original manuscripts, and most of those are counted as accurate and true. Uh, That's where we get most of our information about what the Greco-Roman world was like from his writings. Aristotle's Poetics, 384 to 322 BC. This is where primary poetic structure originates from. We have five copies of Aristotle's writings. Caesar's Gallic Wars, about 58 BC. First-hand account of what those wars were like. We have about 10 and... Ten copies. And then finally, Alexander the Great. You all know him, right? Have heard his name. Most of what you know comes from those two copies of ancient biographies. What about the Bible? How does the Bible compare? Well, believe it or not, there's 25,000 copies of the New Testament manuscripts. Okay. What about distance and time? Thucydides wrote, again, about the Greco-Roman world. His writings were about 1,300 years displaced about the writings he was writing about, about the events he was writing about. But we trust them as authoritative. History didn't change as rapidly as it did today, so we have a good idea that that is true. Aristotle's poetics, the ones we have, are 1,400 years removed from the originals. Caesar's Gallic Wars were 1,000 years after his death. And Alexander the Greats were 400 years after Alexander died. People were writing his biography. What about the Bible? About 15 to 20 years after the events they were writing about. It's this reason of why Sir Frederick G. Kenyon, he's the former director of the British Museum, he concludes that in no other cases is the interval of time between the composition of the book And the date of the earliest extent manuscript so short as that in the New Testament. And here's why this is important. If the Gospels were written, let's let's be generous, 30 to 50 years removed from the events they were writing about. You can trust that document. Why? Because the majority of people who were during that time are still alive. They're still accounting for what's happening. And the Bible is making some pretty radical claims about the world. And enough to make most people discredit it if there weren't witnesses or martyrs willing to die for it. I'll give you a modern example. If I told you or wrote a book about the nuclear war that broke out between Canada and the United States in the year 1991, you wouldn't believe me. You would knock that off as false. Why? Number one, it's Canada. They wouldn't hurt a fly. We all know that. Number two, you were alive in 1991, most of you. I think, yeah, most of us in here, right? You know that event didn't take place, so you can quickly snuff that out as untrue. So you have to now carry that logic over to the Bible, because people back then did not believe people died and then breathed again on earth just as much as you didn't believe it. So we carry that logic over. Now, there's many other areas that we could talk in the realm of historicity of the Bible. We're going to move on for the people who stuck with me through our history lesson. But there are valid methods. The people that were witnesses. There's even a thing called counterproductive content, meaning that the Bible has certain things about it that you would think would make the message die away. Like women being the first witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Women during this time didn't have their word in court meant nothing. And yet they are the first witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Why? If you're going to spread a movement, would you put women in the front unless it is history? And you're just telling the way the events took place. If you want to know more about this this line of study, you can come talk to me. I love talking about this stuff. For sake of time, let's move on to cultural trust. Skeptics point out that there seems to be a cultural disconnect between modern world and the Bible, arguing that the Bible is culturally regressive to our modern standards and that we shouldn't trust it. When it comes to things like pro-slavery and misogynistic, Okay, so how do we approach the the Bible in a way that holds true to standards that our culture, that we have deemed to be right and true, but also allows it to speak to us? First thing I want to say to that is we never want to make wrong assumptions about what the Bible is based on or what we think it says. We never want to denounce Jesus out of our own ignorance, assuming the Bible's usage of a certain phrase or certain word or certain idea aligns completely with how we use it today. When Westerners hear the word slave, for example, we typically think of the African slave trade in which owners could beat, even kill their slaves. Historians tell us that Roman slavery was not like this. Slaves were not identified as a race. They were not owned the same way that African slaves were owned. They were not segregated from society, killed on a whim, or tortured. In fact, history shows that about 85 to 90 percent of inhabitants of Rome and Italy were slaves in the 1st and 2nd century. We are working with a different world, a different framework, and we have to keep that in mind. Now hear me very clearly. That doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it right. Just because something is in the Bible does not make it right. We have to begin identifying the difference between the Bible explaining what is happening and God affirming and encouraging what is happening favoritism to older children, polygamy, the treatment of women as property. These are realities that exist in the world of the Bible, and God works in it and through it, but it's not methods of life that he ordains or commands. Now, putting that to the side, we have to be careful not to reject the Bible based off of our cultural reasoning— Because by doing that, we are prioritizing one cultural belief over another. And we do that not because we're more objective or because we have a more detached position to judge, but we do it because we are a product of our time and our environment. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it pretty well. I'll clarify what he says if, if you don't catch it. He says, every human community shares and cherishes certain assumptions traditions, expectations, anxieties, and so forth, which encourage its members to construe reality in particular ways, and which context with, and which create context with which certain kinds of statements are perceived as making sense. To make sense of that, essentially he's saying that there is no such thing as an objective vantage point. Every single one of us has to be careful that our cultural moment doesn't define our truth blindly. That we don't consider new ideas or old ideas. We cannot hold on to an idea simply because that's the way it's always been done. Or that's how my preacher back home has always taught me. Or that's what the media has says to be the most right. Our cultural moment cannot rise above something God spoke that transcends all cultures and all time. In just a few generations, our ideas are going to look outdated and silly as everybody else's has. So we cannot let them be the paradigm of our truth. And then the final one, the final form of trust, and likely the most important or relevant for people in here, is personal trust. That the Bible is not about you. It is for you. This is where the rubber meets the road, where people often reject the Bible not because of its historical validity, not because of the cultural standards that it upholds, but because it demands something of them personally that they do not want to do. There's many people who walk into our church who've walked away from Christianity at some point in their life. They went to church as kids, they read the Bible, But it felt like a burden. It didn't feel freeing to them. And that's because, like many of us, the Bible has become something that's about me. We create faith in God to be having to do something or be something to please God. We try with all of our might not to lie, to steal, to gossip, to sleep around. But in some way, inevitably, we fail. And we fail over and over again. And I imagine there is somebody in this room who has failed so many times, you are ready to just throw in the towel. I've read the Bible. I don't see the transformation. I've given my life to Jesus. I'm still feeling failure. The good news is, is that the good news is for you just as much as it is for the rest of the world. The good news says that if you're reading your Bible the way it was designed to be read, you wouldn't be discouraged about your failures because you know that is the natural state for those who are separate from God. Everybody fails, which is why we need somebody to succeed for us. And the Bible says Jesus is that person. The entire Bible says, even the stories in the Old Testament, they are pointing us to Jesus, to who he is, to what he did for humanity. Every story whispers his name. He is the true Adam, the true Abraham, the true Moses, the true David. He is the prophesied Messiah, the real baby in the manger, and the true Savior who died on a cross. And the laws of the Bible don't have to crush you because they crushed you. Jesus in your place. You don't have to run or reject the Bible or God because they rejected Jesus and was distant from God in your place. And where do we learn that good news? We learn it in the Bible. The book, Augustine said, is the face of God for us now. So what personal power does it have? Well, speaking from experience, I gave my life to Christ before I ever entered a church or knew many Christians. My primary way of knowing God was through the Bible. To give you a, a, a pretty vulnerable view of what my life looked like at the time, is I would drink too much, go too far with my girlfriend, say many, too many profane words on the weekend, and then I would devour my Bible in the week. I, I was curious. I was hungry for him. I read his stories and the things he said, and it began to change me. Over time, and it took a lot of time, it began to change me, my faith within me. It turned my heart from a heart of rebellion to a heart on fire for God and who desired change. So here's what I want you to hear, to take away with you this week. If you're a skeptic or a faithful believer, here it is. This week, I want you to be more like a cow. What did you just say? Be more like a cow. Did he just say cow? Some of you are, some of you are like, Peyton. you better get to your point. More like a cow, what are you saying? I want you to be more like a cow. Here's what I mean by that. Have you ever watched a cow eat? It's so interesting and it's disgusting. Cow will take some grass and put it in its mouth. And give you sound effects and everything here. Swallow it. And then you wanna know what he does? Puts it back in his mouth and chew it and swallow it again. And then you wanna know what he does? Kids, what does he do? He brings it back up to his mouth and you know what that's called? It's called ruminating. Ruminating. That's the process as you Put it back up. And what the cow is doing, he's trying to suck every bit of nutrients out of that grass before it goes through the rest of the process. And that is what God's word needs to be in your life. Where you are chewing on God's word. You are swallowing God's word. You're bringing it back up and chewing on it again, trying to pour and pull every bit of nutrients you can out of his words. This week, be a cow. Change in my life didn't happen because a church told me to. It didn't happen because leaders dis, uh, disciplined me. It didn't happen because parents guilted me. Change in my life happened because of the Bible itself. God's voice through his scriptures. They speak. And if you'll listen, If you heed them, if you allow them to actually take over, they have the power to change your life too. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you as people who are humble, who often get in our own way and need to just fall on our knees at your feet. Father, faith. our faith is not determined by how smart we are or how many answers we think we have or the logic compared to the rest of the world. Our faith is determined on the truth of Jesus, the truth that's revealed to us in your word, the truth and the word that we have given our life to. And God, I pray for every single person hearing my voice right now. I pray that the word of God will not be a stumbling block. It won't be a reason to push people away. God, it will be an invitation for life change. God, that we have a reason to believe it, to be transformative in its power. That it reveals to us truths about the world and ourselves that the world cannot offer us. God, we believe it to be the truth about your son who gave it all for us. We read those stories in that amazing, miraculous event of his resurrection and the hope he gives us in its pages. So God, as we ruminate on scripture this week, this month, our life, may we store it in our heart. May it get down deep inside of us. May it change everything about us. God, we give it to you this week. Everything we are who we are, we give it to you. In the power of Jesus, we pray this prayer. Amen.